This is Dialogue Gospel Sunday Study. Hello, and welcome to Dialogue Gospel Study for October 9th, 2022, with Dr. Deidre Nicole Green, who will be exploring Jeremiah and maybe some other scriptures with us today. I'm Rebecca Deschweinitz, and on behalf of the Dialogue Foundation Board, I'm pleased to be with you here. Fellow board member Chris Kimball is also helping out today. Whether you're a longtime listener or new to Dialogue Gospel Study, we invite you to check out all that Dialogue offers at our website, dialoguejournal.com. There you can find previous Gospel Study lessons, other offerings like Dialogue Out Loud and Dialogue Book Report, as well as links to all the great shows in the Dialogue Podcast Network, including, I think most recently, this global Latter-day Life with host Carolyn Klein. You can also find the latest issue of the journal along with the entire dialogue archive. That's more than five decades of the journal's scholarship, poetry, essays, sermons, fiction, and art. In the very first issue of Dialogue, founder Eugene England wrote, my faith encourages my curiosity and awe. It thrusts me out into relationship with all the world, all creation and encourages me to enter into dialogue. Faith and curiosity and awe continue to guide the work we do. Find out how you can support the work and secure the future of the oldest independent Mormon studies journal at the donate link at dialoguejournal.com. Our teacher today, Dr. Deidre Nicole Green, is the Assistant Professor of Latter-day Saint Mormon Studies at the Graduate Theological Union, where she is currently teaching a course on interpersonal forgiveness. She studied philosophy at BYU before completing a Master's of Arts in Religion at Yale Divinity School and a PhD in Religion at Claremont Graduate University. Deidre has worked as a postdoctoral researcher at the Neil A. Maxwell Institute for, for Religious Scholarship and designed a course on feminist approaches to religious thought for the Global Women's Studies program while at BYU. She recently co-edited with Eric Huntsman a volume entitled Latter-day Saint Perspectives on Atonement, forthcoming from the University of Illinois Press. Deidre is also the author of Works of Love in a World of Violence, Kierkegaard, Feminism, and the Limits of Self-Sacrifice, and Jacob, A Brief Theological Introduction. She's currently under contract for her second book on Kierkegaard. On today's program, we're also pleased to have Dr. Miranda Wilcox and Dr. Tonalyn Ford with us. They'll be offering prayers and some other thoughts along the way. Miranda teaches medieval literature at Brigham Young University, where she is an associate professor of English. She has a PhD in medieval studies from the University of Notre Dame. Her research explores early medieval religious culture uh, focusing on how religious communities construct identity. She enjoys playing the organ and running with her dog. She met Deidre when Deidre lived in Provo. Tonalyn Ford is a postdoctoral research fellow at the Neil A. Maxwell Institute for, for Religious Scholarship. Her projects center on the intersection of Latter-day Saint history and the religions of India and draw from a growing archive of oral histories gathered in India over the past eight years. She danced her way into this topic as a BYU Young Ambassador touring India, Nepal, and Sri Lanka as an undergrad. Tonalyn received her PhD in History of Religions at Claremont Graduate University, where she met Deidre Green on her first day of coursework. She began teaching classes on Latter-day Saint scripture and world religions as an adjunct in the BYU Religion Department in 2013. The author of several articles and book chapters, she currently serves on the board of the Mormon History Association. Her favorite diversions from academic work are food and family, especially spending time with her five children. As with any Latter-day Saint scripture study class, the views expressed today are those of the individual teacher and participants. They do not necessarily reflect those of the Dialogue Foundation, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Brigham Young University, or any other organization. Okay, go ahead, Miranda. Father in heaven, we are grateful for this opportunity um, today to reflect about the prophet Jeremiah and think about ways that he might speak across time. Um, to help us understand the challenges um, that we face today. And please bless 
um, Deidre that she will be able to share um, the insights um, that she has prepared and um, that collectively we might um, generate new insights together. And we say these things in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. All right, how's that? Um, well, good morning, everyone. Again, my name is Deidre Green, and it's my pleasure and honor today to uh, introduce us to the quintessential Debbie Downer of the Hebrew Bible, uh, Jeremiah, who is one of my favorite figures. And I started um, there with that song by Sissel and the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, um, because I believe it just creates a really nice space and opens us up for the emotional intensity um, and the traumatic circumstances of the book of Jeremiah. Uh, feminist uh, biblical scholar, uh, Phyllis Tribble, analyzes multiple marginal figures within the Old Testament. And she says, quote, no one articulates marginalization more vehemently than Jeremiah. And she further observes that, quote, the sufferings, insights, and longings of Jeremiah threaten to overwhelm all who witness him. What manner of man or woman dare so to expose himself. His agonies plunge us into the depth of the inner life as they intertwine with the social and political vicissitudes of his time. And many scholars observe that those vicissitudes of his time are equally relevant to the times in which we find ourselves. And some even argue that the book of Jeremiah is more relevant uh, today than it ever has been. I wanna, um, just offer as a framework uh, for thinking about the book of Jeremiah, um, one that's offered by Carolyn Sharp in terms of a more general feminist approach to biblical scholarship. And according to her, there are three objectives to feminist biblical interpretation. The first is to honor all subjects. The second is to interrogate power relations. And third, to reconstitute community. And I think all of these issues are especially relevant within the book of Jeremiah. And while we'll address all three of those somewhat today, I really want to focus on reconstituting community. So just by way of introduction to the book of Jeremiah, uh, due to his own vulnerability and the magnitude of the threat under which Jeremiah lived, the book named for him is a vertiginous and at times vituperative book that gives voice to profound suffering amid unthinkable and unanticipated devastation, amid the fracturing of the world and its return to primordial chaos, something that Steve Peck made reference to in his lesson. It portrays both God and God's prophet as profoundly affected by God's people. There is deep emotionality and extreme contrast in the indictments of faithlessness and injustice, coupled with affirmations of faithfulness and reconciliation. Here we encounter not just a prophet and a people, but also a God in extremis. This unsettled God ultimately works through Jeremiah to offer God's people a future with hope. The book of Jeremiah covers turbulent times from the 13th year of King Josiah's reign in 627 BCE to the fifth month of the Babylonian captivity of Jerusalem in 587 BCE, which represents the defining kairos of the book. One scholar believes that the point of the book of Jeremiah is to create a world in which survivors can name the disaster, interpret it, and find hope through the persona of Jeremiah, a survivor of disaster. Another scholar observes, quote, perhaps more than anyone in his time, Jeremiah provided the means by which a despairing people could hope for a new future. As a sort of diptych, the first half of Jeremiah's book focuses on plucking up and pulling down, and the second half of the book on building and planting. <clears throat> Jeremiah demonstrates that the plucking up and pulling down that must precede survival and a future of hope occurs primarily through the prophet's practice of truth-telling, which breaks down society's denial. One scholar observes, quote, Jeremiah must do truth-telling, not because he is a scold, but because he knows as deeply as anyone can know anything that this is a community on its way to death. 
God promises to be with Jeremiah in the face of the devastation that his people will suffer at the hands of the Babylonian army and in the task of telling his people things they absolutely do not want to hear. Embedded in this promise is the clear prediction that no one is going to like what Jeremiah has to say, quote, but you gird up your loins, stand and tell them everything that I command you. Do not break down before them or I will break you before them. And I, for my part, have made you today a fortified city, an iron pillar and a bronze wall against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its princes, its priests and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you for I am with you, says the Lord to deliver you. Here, Jeremiah is depicted in contrast to Jerusalem, which is neither sustained nor delivered from its enemies. Yet Jeremiah's calling and prophetic vision extends even further. He is willing to suffer this abasement because by returning his people to the Lord, he can affect the well-being of the entire human family. Jeremiah speaks for God in promising his people that they can be the source of blessing to all. In Jeremiah 4, he says, if you return, O Israel, says the Lord, if you return to me, if you remove your abominations from my presence and do not waver, and if you swear as the Lord lives in truth, in justice, and in uprightness, the nations shall be blessed by him, and by him, by him shall they boast. Despite the fact that Jeremiah explicitly states that he longs for a traveler's lodging place in the desert, quote, that I might leave my people and go away from them. He doesn't leave them. He remains in Jerusalem to help his people survive, retain hope, and rebuild. The fact that the blessing of the nations is contingent upon Israel's return to God serves as impetus for Jeremiah to suffer in the ways that he does as prophet. Um, Miranda, do you want to make some comments here? Yeah. Um, let's see. So one of the ways um, that Jeremiah suffers in un, maybe unprecedentedly is that God tells Jeremiah not to get married and not to have children because life is just going to be so terrible that there's no point. Um, and Robert Alter notes um, that this is perhaps the most drastic of the symbolic prophetic acts that Jeremiah is asked to perform. Um, and for Latter-day Saints, this is, a, I mean, what do we make of the fact that God actually might or does tell people not to get married, especially a prophet? And this is somewhat in contrast with what Jeremiah tells the exiles in chapter 29 and 30, which is to get married um, and have children, but Jeremiah himself is not, not given that same opportunity. Yeah, thank you. So we'd love comments um, and discussion around uh, those issues if anyone wants to um, chime in. I'll um, continue talking about this uh, truth-telling and hope-telling mission that Jeremiah finds himself on. So Jeremiah works to bring about this wide-scale blessing to the nations through two main means that are key to any prophetic personality, namely truth-telling and hope-telling. Truth-telling serves as an essential ingredient of Jeremiah's meaning-making and hopeful vision because, as scholars observe, truth-telling is the starting point of hope and the path to communal healing, such that hope-telling cannot happen until there has been difficult truth-telling. Uh, biblical scholars Stolman and Kim opine that, quote, the telos of written prophecy is communal survival and that its enduring contribution lies in its trenchant truth-telling and dogged refusal to deny the unspeakable and in its audacity to imagine a future for defeated and captive people who live in a world in which violence and death are more tangible than coherence and meaning. These two aspects of prophetic witness work together because recovery, both communal and individual, begins by telling the truth. Um, I'll pause there for a minute um, in case there are any responses to uh, the question that Miranda brought up um, or if there are any uh, comments by people here on the panel about uh, this relationship between hope telling and truth telling. 
Um, I can just kind of add, I think I love the, the quote that hope telling cannot happen until there has been difficult truth telling. <laughs> and I think that is, it's just very difficult. It's a challenge to be truthful. Um, and again, another indication that this message of Jeremiah is so important for our day. Um, and this idea of telling the truth is just, it, it, it leads to the healing that, that we need. Absolutely, thank you. So I don't think see anything yet on the chat, but um, this this kind of um, kind of idea that truth and reconciliation and the building of something new and hopeful um, are sequential uh, is something that I've been thinking a lot about. Um, you know, especially as uh, as we're trying to grapple, since my research deals with issues of race um, in history, uh, and as I'm teaching an African-American history class this semester and really my kind of, uh, you know, doing this work with students of figuring out what the truth in history is when it comes to race. Um, and uh, I guess, uh, you know, watching them confront um, hard truths. Um, I, I've been inspired by um, kind of the development that that they have with um, with wanting to do better and to and to make a difference. Um, so there's something about truth telling that um, connects with our with our souls and opens us up to to empathy, um, both in seeing others and in seeing ourselves in a new way. I think that um, is probably essential to kind of this hope moving forward. Uh, there's a couple of comments now that uh, sure. that say um, a comparison with Paul's comments on marriage might be relevant. I don't know if that's something we want to go to. Um, and and the thought that that Jeremiah received this commandment not to marry and have kids really, you know, is a lesson that everyone has unique roles and God is large enough for children to need different things um, and that God is mindful of those different directions that uh, his children might need to take in order to fulfill whatever their divine mission is, right? Um, some other, th I'll just throw out some other things and then if, if you want to comment on some of these um, such a powerful idea, it feels to me that LDS, uh, or at least Utah culture, is more akin to play on in soccer. Uh, bad things happen instead of acknowledging them, there's a significant effort to just move forward, mm -hmm. uh, which can be really unsatisfying. And I think it's unsatisfying because of probably the truths that Jeremiah is trying to teach that, um, that it is necessary to do this work of truth telling. Uh, that that we as a kind of culture are really um, haven't come to real resolution, um, to real reconciliation, and really grappling with what that means and what that looks like. So um, maybe there's other great comments, but maybe if you want to respond to anything there. Yeah, um, thank you so much for those comments. I think those are all really insightful. I really love the reminder that we all have very distinctive paths. And in a number of ways, Jeremiah is a testament to that. Um, as far as the, the comment about covering over, I think that there are kind of two tendencies that I observe. Uh, one is to be a truth teller in a way that sort of can devolve into cynicism, right? Um, and then a tendency to be a hope teller in a way that requires a sort of blissful ignorance. And I think what is so admirable about not Jeremiah, but other um, Hebrew prophets is their ability to really do both. Um, and I think part of what you were speaking to, Rebecca, and part of what that last comment was about reminds me of one of my mentors in feminist theology, uh, Letty Russell, 
who used the phrase clues for transformation. And she would talk about the fact that it's really within the problems when we take a hard, cold look at them and really see them for what they are and unpack them. It's within the problem itself that we get the clues for transformation of how to improve. And so I think that really helps us to see why there is such a strong connection between the two and that we really can't get to a real hope or an authentic hope uh, without uh, doing that really difficult work of taking a cold, hard look at it. Yeah, it's reminding me too of um, kind of James Baldwin who talks about, um, you know, what are the lies that are the that are the basis of our present difficulty and and that are keeping us from, you know, the the build and plant part. <laughs> Um, but instead, you know, really do need to be plucked out and pulled down in order to move forward um, and, and to come to a place of hope where we can actually realize what it is that we're meant to realize as, as children of God. Absolutely. It's building that new foundation by taking out what, what's faulty underneath. I have one other comment, another thought. I was recently in an interfaith dialogue and it was interesting. The people that were um, Latter-day Saint, where we were, the topic we were talking about was difficult for us and, and people were kind of dancing around the topic. And, and once we were willing to, to just say, here is the truth <laughs> about what happened. And it, it opened up a vulnerable place. Our vulnerability was showing. But that made it made all the difference in the dialogue. Suddenly, we were open, and um, we could be uh, have a conversation where we couldn't before. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, so, along these lines of this sort of excavation that we have to do to um, uncover what's wrong and and build a new foundation that can be based on a real hope. Um, I just want to share some examples of the truth-telling that Jeremiah does. So his truth-telling includes informing his people that, quote, you have done all the evil that you could, and that the lifeblood of the innocent poor is on their garments. He says that they've brought upon themselves their destruction by Babylon, and goes so far as to pronounce the totality of the impending destruction, quote, this is your doom how bitter it is, it has reached your very heart. Due to the collective sins of the people, Jeremiah laments, quote, we look for peace, but find no good for a time of healing, but there is terror instead. Going into more detail about the nature of the offenses, Jeremiah states, they know no limits in deeds of wickedness. They do not judge with justice, the cause of the orphan to make it prosper, and they do not defend the rights of the needy. And these sins include burning their daughters and sons in the fire. God makes clear that God rejects these sacrifices, quote, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. The totalizing injustice extends to the prophets and priests who prophesy falsely that peace and justice abide when it does not. Quote, for from the least of the, to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have treated the wound of my people carelessly, <clears throat> saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. And Jeremiah sums up that, quote, an appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule as the prophets direct. My people love to have it so, but what will you do when the end comes? At the same time, Jeremiah's truth-telling is unflinching in, in affirming God's love of justice and in reassuring the exiles of God's hesed, God's everlasting covenant love. He proclaims, thus says the Lord, do not let the wise boast in their wisdom, do not let the mighty boast in their might, do not let the wealthy boast in their wealth, but let those who boast, boast in this, that they understand and know me, that I am the Lord. I act with steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, says the Lord. Jeremiah's integrity and commitment to truth-telling is such that it also gets directed at God. He says to the Lord, you will be in the right, O Lord, when I lay charges against you. 
but let me put my case to you. He accuses God of injustice for prospering the wicked while allowing Jeremiah to suffer. Quote, why does the way of the guilty prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? You plant them and they take root. They grow and bring forth fruit. You are near in their mouths, yet far from their hearts. But you, O Lord, know me. You see me and test me. My heart is with you. And Jeremiah's accusations crescendo as he tells God, you are to me like a deceitful brook like waters that fail. Jeremiah names his fear that God has abandoned his people. Have you completely rejected Judah? Does your heart loathe Zion? Yet Jeremiah recognizes God as the only source of hope. Do not spurn us for your namesake. Do not dishonor your glorious throne. Remember and do not break your covenant with us. Can any idols of the nations bring rain? Or can the heavens give showers? Is it not you, O Lord our God? We set our hope on you, for it is you who do all this. The Hebrew word for hope, tikva, appears in multiple places in the book, making reference to God as the hope of Israel and to Israel's future of hope. This hope is based on trust in God. Jeremiah seeks to engender this trust in his people, even though he himself expresses disillusionment at times. In Jeremiah 17, he proclaims, blessed are those who trust in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. They shall be like a tree planted by water, sending out its roots by the stream. It shall not fear when heat comes and its leaves shall stay green. In the year of drought, it is not anxious and it does not cease to bear fruit. Um, and I think we had some comments about this passage in Jeremiah as well. Does anyone want to chime in? Yeah, I was really fascinated with how Jeremiah links um, the imagery of trees and vines all the way through the chapter. Um, and it links back to Jeremiah's original prophetic commission to uproot and then to plant. So at the beginning, um, Israel is described, is figured as um, an alien vine. Um, and um, again, uprooted trees. Um, and finally in 17, we see that reversal of the imagery to new trees being planted near water and the flourishing um, of this natural landscape. Um, and th there's also um, metaphoric parallels with some of the other imagery that runs through the chapter or the, the book. Um, the pottery, uh, Israel's initially figured as broken um, pots that eventually get reformed. Um, and they're also figured as, um, as an unfaithful, shamed woman. And that imagery, I think I had a pretty hard time with just because it's, it's hard to have um, God figured um, you know, as somebody who's um, violating and stripping of a vulnerable woman's body, um, regardless of what she's done to hurt him. So the tree imagery was more manageable for me because it was familiar from the vineyard parables in the New Testament in the Book of Mormon. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for naming the, the problem of the abusive language. Of course, Jeremiah is continuing uh, the marital metaphor that starts uh, with Hosea and is equally problematic as Hosea, right, in his way of sort of depicting that relationship. And I think actually as Latter-day Saints, we have a special responsibility to name the problem there because in our own restoration scripture, right, we have uh, passages of scripture that are not parallel in terms of consequences for adultery of men and women, right? And specifically speak to uh, the destruction, right? Using that language of destruction uh, against women who, um, who commit adultery. And so I think it's really important to name that this is deeply problematic um, and something that um, we should not let Jeremiah or anyone else off the hook for. So did anyone else want to comment on that? I, I, I'm just um, struck too by the kind of trees and vine metaphor and especially, and, and the kind of 
um, problem of uprootedness that um, that seems to you know link to um, this holistic way of thinking about God's children and the tendency that is being condemned here to to not um, to not remember um, and to kind of privilege the branches, um, you know, as individuals and not look at the whole tree and not appreciate the roots and, and kind of, you know, what that is supposed to mean for who we are um, and what our relationship uh, kind of is supposed to be to one another. Yeah, absolutely. I think the imagery that Jeremiah uses here really speaks to that violation of our most fundamental nature as being interconnected and interrelated. Um, yeah, there's also a comment on Facebook I wanted to bring in. Um, um, just a question uh, about, can you say something regarding truth telling and, and being kind? And there was something in chat here too, that sometimes <laughs> being truthful um, it is in within Mormon culture labeled as being unkind. And sometimes, uh, sometimes it is weaponized <laughs> as well against um, individuals and groups of people. So I don't know if you have some thoughts or Jeremiah has something to say about that. Well, <laughs> I, I, Jeremiah has zero concern with being kind <laughs> ever. That's not, that's not a thing for Jeremiah. Um, I do agree that it should be a thing for us. Um, and I think that it's really important in truth telling um, as a sort of normal practice of everyday people that we should really kind of assess where we're coming from and really be sure that we are seeking the gift of charity as we are doing our truth telling. I do think that um, there, there is an honesty that is absolutely redemptive. And I think that true love for God, for ourselves, for other people requires us to engage in that sort of redemptive honesty with, with one another so that we don't play these sort of collective um, games of the emperor's new clothes, right? Which we're all too good at as Latter-day Saints. So <laughs> I'll just name that. Um, uh, and so to see truth telling as something that is both loving and redemptive, um, I think is really important. So. All right, um, I'm gonna come back to this. Um, so we're not here for three hours. Um, so the trust um, that Jeremiah seeks uh, to engender in his people uh, lies in God's promise of true peace for uh, and divine communion with Israel, if they will learn to do justice. For if you truly amend your ways and your doings, if you truly act justly one with another, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan and the widow or shed innocent blood in this place. And if you do not go after other gods to your own hurt, then I will dwell with you in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your ancestors forever and ever. At the same time, scholars point out that Jeremiah's future of hope is not what Judah desired. They will not triumph as a nation or in military efforts, but they will survive. Here we learn that living with hope means accepting and acknowledging survival as a grace. In the Book of Mormon, Laman and Lemuel lament that they gave up a home and riches to which they felt entitled, while Nephi recognizes his mere survival as a grace. And it seems that at least for a time, the sense of entitlement to what was lost vitiates the possibility of moving forward for Laman and Lemuel, while Nephi's perspective seems to empower him to engage in creative endeavors to build a new life and a new society of flourishing. And I find this really instructive for us. For Jeremiah, hope is not about going back to something that was lost, but instead it involves telling the truth and letting go of the old so that God's newness can break through. This hopefulness that invites divine intervention is especially striking given that Jeremiah is so emotional, angry, and disillusioned himself. Jeremiah is not just one who hopes against hope, but one who against hope gives hope. So I wanna think um, for just a minute about the sort of moral psychology, moral emotions at play uh, within the book of Jeremiah. So clearly he stands out as a religious figure who is unabashed about his high emotionality. 
He's both profoundly grieved and highly enraged by the state of his people and God's role or lack thereof in it. He offers the possibility of viewing both mourning and anger as forces that can be spiritually and socially constructive. In his mourning for the people, he laments, my joy is gone, grief is upon me, my heart is sick. For the hurt of my people, I, for the poor of my people, I am hurt. I mourn and dismay has taken hold of me. And he vividly expresses the longing to cry for his people. Oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears, so that I might weep day and night for the slain of my poor people. And I just want to note here that many commentators, perhaps most commentators, accept that here Jeremiah speaks not only for himself, but also for God in his desire to weep for his people. In passages like these, Jeremiah demonstrates that prophetic literature marks the return of the voice silenced by trauma and addresses the basic needs of survivors for hope, dignity, agency, acceptance, and forgiveness. And he does not restrict the reclamation of voice silenced by trauma to his own. In addition to giving voice to his own grief and that of God, Jeremiah also enlists others to weep and mourn. In chapter nine, God through Jeremiah exhorts, quote, call for the mourning women to come, send for the skilled women to come. Let them quickly raise a dirge over us so that our eyes may run down with tears and our eyelids flow with water. Hear, O women, the word of the Lord and let your ears receive the word of his mouth. Teach to your daughters a dirge and each to her neighbor a lament. Death has come up into our windows. It has entered our palaces to cut off the children from the streets and the young men from the squares. Beyond joining God and Jeremiah in their weeping, scholar Juliana Clausen suggests that the wailing women's tears challenge a community that has grown complacent in the face of the many social injustices threatening the well-being of the society as a whole, and that these women serve as God's spokespersons, as the conscience of the people in righting their world's wrongs. Their cries can be seen as an act of resistance that gives voice to injustice in the face of brutal devastation, Offering an example of female agency, women leading communities in grappling with grief and trauma. Their initiative works to help transcend the suffering to something more that holds the promise of hope and life. Jeremiah returns to the figure of a weeping woman later in the text in a way that highlights the efficacy of female action on behalf of Israel. And that is a plant for the discussion afterwards because we probably won't get to it in our time frame here. On the flip side of mourning, Jeremiah further evinces a rugged spirituality that is comfortable with raw emotion by describing himself as embodying divine anger. Quote, but I am full of the wrath of the Lord. I am weary of holding it in. To the extent that Jeremiah's anger fuels his attempts to bring, out, uh, bring about reconciliation between his people and their enemies and their God. He is a resource for us to consider what a constructive theology of anger might look like, particular, particularly for those on the margins and experiencing various forms of oppression. This might be framed in terms of philosopher Maisha Cherry's uh, work about the role of anger and what she terms Lordian rage, drawing on Audre Lorde, in anti-racist efforts. Quote, anger is not only compatible with agape love, but it can also express agape love. For Jeremiah, anger and other myriad forms of dissonance he feels confront him with an irreconcilability with God and his people, which impels him towards engendering reconciliation for others. <clears throat> so we'll look a little bit more at this, um, starting with the framework of Jeremiah's call. So Latter-day Saints are familiar with the language of Jeremiah's prophetic call and tend to elevate it in a way that Jeremiah did not. His calling is unique in that it expresses foreordination as well as a certain inevitability. Quote, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Once God alleviates Jeremiah's fear of inadequacy and of the people to whom he will prophesy, God touches his mouth. Now I have put my words in your mouth. Jer Jeremiah will later, and quite resentfully, characterize this encounter as having eaten the words God put in his mouth. When Jeremiah curses his birth in his final lament, he may be trying to negate this call. In both chapters 15 and 20, Jeremiah echoes Job in lamenting his own birth, stating that the person who announced to his father that a son had been born to him ought to be cursed. 
He regrets his prenatal calling, expressing the wish that he had not come forth from the womb. Woe is me, my mother, that you ever bore me. And laments even more vividly that the man who announced Jeremiah's birth to his father should have killed him in the womb. So my mother would have been my grave and her womb forever great. Why did I come forth from the womb to see toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame? These feelings issue from the resentment he experiences by his peers and he calls for divine retribution against those who wish him harm. He goes further to call God a deceiver for giving Jeremiah prophetic words that turn people against him. In terms of his persecuting peers, he implores, give heed to me, O Lord, and listen to what my adversaries say. Is evil a recompense for good? Yet they have dug a pit for my life. Remember how I stood before you to speak good for them? They have dug a pit to catch me and laid snares for my feet. No good deed goes unpunished for this in this prophet's estimation. Jeremiah accuses God not only of wrongdoing, but also of collusion with Jeremiah's enemies, lamenting that his pain is unceasing, his wound uncurable, refusing to be healed. So Jeremiah is profoundly undone by the way God has disappointed him through his foreordained prophetic calling. Jeremiah uses stark language to describe both the actions of God and his peers towards him that directly reflect each other. He describes his peers' actions toward him thus, quote, all my close friends are watching for me to stumble. Perhaps he can be enticed and we can prevail against him and take our revenge on him. It is in this context that Jeremiah decries God's actions towards him as well. Quote, oh Lord, you have enticed me and I was enticed. You have overpowered me and you have prevailed. The Hebrew verb here rendered as overpower can also mean seizing, compelling, strengthening, taking hold of, and even raping. Biblical commentators point out that here, Jeremiah's language pushes the lament genre to its limits. Jeremiah's language about the disillusionment he feels with God nearly mirrors his language about his disillusionment uh, about his relationship to his to the human community. This calls for productive thinking about the dynamics at play. Is Jeremiah displacing his experience of other human beings onto the divine? How might this inform our own relationship with God and others? Does our behavior in our church community or other communities improve or disparage others' faith in God and their relationship with God? Or coming at it from another direction, when has our frustration and disillusionment with God been the result of displacing our feelings about human actions onto divine intention. Despite his deep discontentment, Jeremiah continues to carry out his prophetic calling. That his foreordination implies inevitability is attested by a statement that even though he is despised for prophesying, he cannot do otherwise. If I say I will not mention God or speak anymore in God's name, then within me, there is something like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I am weary with holding it in and I cannot. And there, of course, an allusion to a, a biography of Fred Shuttlesworth, who was uh, instrumental in the American civil rights movement, who has a biography drawing on that language from Jeremiah. As one commentator notes, Jeremiah prophesies because he cannot help himself, yet he remains at odds with God and the audience to which God has sent him. Although Jeremiah descends into utter hopelessness for himself and curses the day of his birth, he remains the harbinger of hope for Judah amid its devastation and captivity and ultimately all Israel. What I think is most laudable and exemplary in this situation is that despite irreconcilable differences with his people and even with God, Jeremiah does not give up on the possibility of reconciliation and peace, but instead seeks to encourage it and engender it on a grand scale. So I wanna quickly just make a few comments um, that go beyond the chapters for today um, on chapter 29 and 31 to get this sort of vision that seems to keep Jeremiah going and that I think we can really be educated by. Um, in his letter to the captives at Babylon found in chapter 29, Jeremiah enjoins his readers to pray and labor for the benefit of their enemies. He encourages those who have been taken captive to Babylon to pray for their captors, quote, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will find your own welfare. And another translation reads, seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace, you will have peace. 
One theologian comments that this passage illustrates the political significance of loving one's enemies. In this light, the prophetic injunction expands love not only to private, but also to national enemies. It serves as a rare place in the Old Testament where intercession on behalf of enemies and unbelievers is commended and also demonstrates that relating to the other as neighbor is a matter of decision and action rather than a matter that is determined by identity. Jeremiah's exhortation is a call to risk to engage with the other in a nonviolent, peaceable way. I stop short of pushing this line of argument so far as to suggest that people who are oppressed by imperial powers in any form have a duty to assume responsibility and care for their oppressors, but want to highlight the productive use of agency in pushing back against victimization and resisting the imposition of misery by destructive external forces. Stolman and Kim are helpful in thinking through this uh, in the context of the Old Testament. And I'll quote here. When written prophecy reestablishes a sense of agency, it empowers colonized communities to act and choose life in the face of abject despair. It restores a deep sense of identity and hope to those deprived of power and dignity. At the same time, this principal ingredient of prophetic meaning making, the reestablishment of agency, is deeply strained by the proclivity to blame victims of violence and exonerate responsible geopolitical agents. So I want to keep that caveat um, at the forefront of our minds as um, I continue to, to pull out what I think is constructive here. Although we need to take care with how we internalize and promulgate his message, I believe Jeremiah still helpfully informs how we navigate the world. Jeremiah's actions could be reduced to self-interested diplomacy, but I believe a more theologically robust reading suggests that loving and willing the good for the neighbor is not at odds with loving and wishing well for oneself. Instead, these two loves and their respective ends are tightly interwoven. Jeremiah's admonition proves instructive for multiple reasons, including the fact that he is speaking to a community of people who understand themselves as having a special covenant status and find themselves surrounded by Gentiles who misuse power and perpetrate violence. Yet Jeremiah asked this covenant community both to move beyond the binaries of us and them, as well as Jew and Gentile, resulting in a collapse of their respective hierarchies encouraging neither a feeling of self-righteous disdain towards their enemies, nor the fear that incites withdrawal. Jeremiah exhorts the Jews to immerse themselves in their larger, if alien, society, laboring and invoking divine blessing on behalf of their enemies' peace. One biblical theologian explains that for Jeremiah, the key to survival and hope lay in joining God in the creation of a just and compassionate counterculture, a place of new shapes and social alternatives where violence, exploitation, and idolatry do not reign. Jeremiah's followers were exhorted to be co-laborers with God in bringing about a just, loving society that functions in accordance with divine will, not exclusively or even primarily for their own sake, but for the sake of their enemies. This point sheds light on how to read aspects of the letter following Jeremiah's initial exhortation. The commandment to seek for the peace of enemies is followed by this promise, quote, for surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for harm, to give you a future with hope. Then when you call upon me and come and pray to me, I will hear you. When you search for me, you will find me if you seek me with all your heart. Biblical scholar Walter Brueggemann emphasizes the conditional nature of God's covenant in the latter verses, stating that God's promise for the future clearly depends on Israel being deeply serious about a responsible relationship with God, and I would add with all other human beings. The last part of the book of Isaiah reiterates this reality as Isaiah promises, quote, if you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your needs in parched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters never fail. Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to live in. And I'm gonna pause for a minute there. So um, my friends here can make some comments on those verses. Yeah, I wanted to just call out the the NIV version of, of this last quote from Isaiah, where he says, 
Um, you shall be the preparer of the breach. And I love that. I think that's beautiful language. In the NIV, it also says, you will be, you will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. And I just think that language brings up some interesting alternatives to this. And um, I also, this is, this comes from um, Isaiah 58 that we're all familiar with in terms of fasting. And um, I, I've been thinking about this a lot. It's Fast Sunday for me today. And um, I, I, in my work in India, I was struck by how many times particularly women would um, call attention to their practice of what they call fasting prayer. And it's always said together, it's always fasting prayer. And in a culture where fasting, I mean, we are really under fasters, right? We don't, we just do not fast compared to a, a culture where people will engage in salakana and fast to the death, right? So, but, but, um, I think I've, I've even seen Latter-day Saints who have talked about, it's not just their 24-hour fast, it's, it's a fasting prayer that lasts over a course of several days, perhaps, where, where there's the, the, the actions that are taken during this fast elevate um, and, and create actions that are a source of prayer. And um, I just love the language in the NIV as well. Um, I think if we um, look at specific, specifically verse 10, and if you spend yourself in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness. And I, I like this language of thinking about it's not just paying a fast offering. Maybe it's thinking about how can we actually satisfy the needs of the oppressed, right? And thinking of expanding this beyond just a simple donation to what, what we're talking about here, right? And how can we do that? And in letting our fast perhaps give birth to that. Amen. Thank you so much uh, for that. I know we're kind of coming close to time. I want to uh, say a few more things to wrap up, but I hope that um, anyone who's interested will stay on and continue the discussion of some of the questions and issues we've raised. And please really stay on and ask me about how female intercession solves the whole problem of the book of Jeremiah, <laughs> because I want to talk about that. Um, but to wrap up. Uh, Jeremiah's prophetic ministry explicitly reaches beyond the suffering within one's own culture. One scholar observes that Jeremiah's letter to the exiles shows confidence in the work of God beyond geographical, political, and cultic boundaries, amounting to the deepest expression of prophetic faith. And I believe this resonates with a theme recurrent throughout the Book of Mormon, that the more corrupt and violent uh, religious outsiders prove themselves to be, the more other the other seems to be, the more religious insiders are obligated to engage and model just ways of living. This approach to relating to the other requires a letting go of the privileged distance of one's chosen status in favor of a sense of solidarity with the other, as well as a stewardship for them. In the face of our own dissonance and discontent, we can turn towards the other and affect peace, solidarity, and reconciliation on their behalf, and hopefully find our own peace by bringing about justice for others. It is instructive to think about how problematic aspects of Latter-day Saint history might have been avoided if those suffering persecution and experiencing exile had seen their own peace as bound up with the peace of their Gentile neighbors, rather than as being oppositional to it. As contemporary Latter-day Saints, we can see Jeremiah's vision as offering a more productive way to think about relationships with the larger societies in which we find ourselves. Jeremiah goes beyond a vision of peace for the captives of Babylon as they seek the peace of the Babylonians, offering a vision of the redemption and reconciliation of all Israel in chapter 31. Envisioning Israel's return, he proclaims, at that time, says the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel and they shall be my people. God through Jeremiah elaborates, see, I am going to bring them from the land of the north and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth, among them the blind and the lame, those with child and those in labor, together a great company, they shall return here. With weeping they shall come, and with consolations I will lead them back. 
For Jeremiah, this is not a simple or straightforward restoration of the old, but the beginning of something new. Scholars note that unlike others who would insist that the devastating events are merely bumps in the road, Jeremiah asserts that they represent true turning points. That is, the hope that Jeremiah holds is not for a return to the old world, but for a new beginning and a new community defined by justice, obedience, and inclusion. Within Jeremiah's hopeful vision, there, was, there is always something that can be done. And rather than fixating on our own lack of resolution, we can work for the reconciliation of others and perhaps find our own in the process. In this way, we can choose to live with heart in spite of brokenheartedness, as post-colonial theologian Anjo puts it. These efforts at reconciliation can occur on both large and small scales amid fragmented realities and relationships. Jeremiah's life and the book named for him depict fragmentation on every level. Yet while he cannot ameliorate certain kinds of fragmentation or fix the problems in the ways he would like, through an irre irrepressible hope, Rooted in his faith in God's goodness and steadfast love, he seeks for reconciliation on a grand and ultimate scale, which is not to be accomplished solely through his own efforts, but the collective efforts of others. The fragmentation we observe and detest in our own lives may be an elusive problem we seek to fix, but from the divine perspective, it may be God's very entry point into our lives, as well as the point in which God can best illuminate paths forward for others through us. This seeking to love and affect reconciliation and choose hope amid fragmentation reminds me of the words of a young Latter-day Saint mother I interviewed in Africa several years ago. Speaking about what her daughter needs from her as a mother, she states that it is love and explains, quote, I try to show her that I love her. I'm trying my best. I'm trying to fill in love that's in pieces. Um, I love that imagery and I know um, both what is evoked from the book of Jeremiah and what we are facing in our own world today can very much feel like a love that's in pieces. Um, but I also know that God has given us the resources and the agency to be able to fill in um, that love through our own efforts of justice. And I say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Deidre and Miranda and Tonalyn. Uh, so Jeremiah might be the quintessential Debbie Downer, but this lesson <laughs> has been uh, just just a revelation, um, just so beautiful and and helping us to think about um, plucking up and pulling down and how we can be co-laborers with God and um, building and planting and um, and loving with heart and bringing about this new world of uh, hope and justice. Uh, we'll close today with um, with music, uh, Savior, Redeemer of My Soul. This arrangement is by Rob Gardner, performed by uh, Dallin Bales, Jenny Oaks Baker, and the Lyceum Philharmonic, and then Tonalyn will pray for us. Our loving Father in heaven, we are very grateful to thee for the opportunity that we have to gather as a community um, that is spread out, but united in our appreciation and love for thy son and for uh, those things that he has done for us and for the ways that we can follow him and the ways that uh, Jeremiah and his experiences and his example um, can instruct us and help us to uh, build hope and to be truth tellers and truth hearers and that we might be able to uh, bring peace and joy to those around us and to experience that in our own lives through our uh, focus and lives cent centered on thy son, Jesus Christ. We thank thee for Deidre, for her wisdom and her talents that she has shared today. And we're grateful for those who have um, made this meeting possible and we ask thee to bless them. We pray for these things and 
give our thanks in the name of thy son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to the Dialogue Gospel Sunday Study. Find more of our podcasts at dialoguejournal.com slash podcasts. Dialogue Podcast Network.